My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Before we get into today's episode, here's Mark from the Warlords of History podcast to let you know about the great work he's doing over there. I'm Mark Pimenta, the host of the Warlords of History podcast, focused on intriguing warriors and leaders, ancient and medieval, that were titans during their respective ages, where, over several episodes, we'll review each of their lifetimes and actions, but also take this further by exploring the surrounding environmental and political conditions, their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did, how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. If any of this interests you, join me as we dive into each of their lifetimes, their worlds, in the Warlords of History podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, episode 45, First Republic, then Dictatorship. In the last episode, we examined the new National Convention, its elections, its factions, and the individuals who would come to lead the body, and as such, revolutionary France. In this episode, we're going to explore the groundbreaking abolition of the monarchy and the historic establishment of the French Republic. We're also going to examine the factional warfare that immediately broke out during the first weeks of the convention, as both the Girondins and the Montagnards accused the other of all manners of treachery and deceit. This will set us up nicely for the trial of King Louis XVI. And yes, that will be the next episode. Now, it's been a while since the last episode, thanks in part to COVID, but don't worry, I am officially back on the podcast recording bicycle. Episode 46, The Trial of the King Part 1, will be available for Patreons with early access shortly. And episode 47, The Trial of the King Part 2, is about halfway complete. That, combined with an upcoming collaboration with the American Revolution podcast, means that there is plenty of great content coming your way. Now, due to the short COVID-induced hiatus of the show, there are plenty of heartfelt thank yous to go round to everyone who has decided to support the show on Patreon. A warm welcome to the newest patrons, including the virtuous citizens Emily, Christian, Doug, Nicolin, John, Tom, Doris, Hans, Nacho and Pete. This also includes the new true revolutionaries, Matt, Anna, Paul and Dee, as well as the new champion of the people, Daniel. As always, a special call out to the amazing champions of the people, Jeffrey, Cynthia, George, Brady, Tim, Mark, Charles, William, Laura and now Daniel. Finally, thank you to Dom for increasing his pledge as well as to Charles, who has increased his pledge for like the billionth time, and now joins Brian, Eric and Christy as the extraordinarily generous heroes of the revolution. As always, Grey History would not be possible without the support of the Patreon community, so thank you so much for choosing to support the show on Patreon. Also, a tremendous thank you to those people who have been helping the show in other ways. This includes telling friends and family, 
promoting the show on social media, leaving reviews, and making one-off donations. It also includes those people who have just written in by email or Twitter or some other means to offer some words of encouragement. I reply to every email, so if you haven't seen anything from me, do make sure to check your junk box. Before we get into it, I want to let you know about some exciting news. Over the past few weeks, we almost cracked the top 100 history podcasts in the United States, and we were in the top 100 everywhere from Australia to Israel to India, Malaysia, Poland, and the Dominican Republic, just to name a few. So thank you so much to everyone who has been helping to spread the word about grey history around the globe. In order to keep grey history going throughout 2023, I'm going to need your help. And in addition to supporting the show on Patreon, recommending the show to others is the next best way to help grey history stay on the air. So between now and the next episode, please make sure you tell at least one person about the show. Again, I need your help to ensure that there's more grey history for you tomorrow. So please, 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 don't leave me hanging. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 45, First Republic, then Dictatorship. Breaking bad habits is notoriously difficult. My consumption of chocolate is a prime example. I have no trouble saying no in the supermarket, but if it makes its way home to the fridge, well, it won't be lasting for long. And yes, I did just say fridge. Once chilled, there is no stopping me. A family block over the course of an afternoon? Well, don't mind if I do. A little taste before work? Why not start the day off right? On a diet? Well, crack open the dark chocolate. That's healthy, isn't it? Jokes aside, while my chocoholism can be a little troubling, it's not the worst thing in the world. There are other tendencies and routines which are far more problematic. Not just for oneself, but for one's family, one's community, one's society. In the context of the French Revolution, two particularly bad habits of the revolutionary era come to mind. The first was the frequent, bitter and often venomous denunciations of one's political opponents, accusing them of all manners of treason, deception and villainy. The second was a tendency to see conspiracy lurking in every shadow, every action, every event. A practice which of course reinforced the eagerness to condemn and malign one's political rivals. By the summer of 1792, these two habits had come to dominate the behaviour of leading revolutionaries on all sides. Girondins denounced Montagnards, Montagnards decried Girondins, everyone attacked aristocrats, and seemingly all revolutionaries presented themselves to be the true champions of the people, while their enemies sought to lead them astray. In the aftermath of the September massacres, these tendencies, to denounce one's political opponents, 
and to see conspiracy in all things, were supercharged. Rumours surrounding the prisoners had of course helped to instigate the murders, but now rumours swirled as to what the killings presaged. As time washed away the blood on the streets, a wave of moderate reaction had risen in the wake of the killings. Fueled in part by disgust and horror, there was genuine concern, at least amongst some, that the men responsible for the murders were only just beginning. That the brutality and popular violence seen in the first week of September was soon to become weapons for a conspiracy. A conspiracy seeking dictatorship and tyranny. For those harbouring more moderate political views, it was feared that the radicals of Paris intended to seize not only the prisoners, but Parisians. Not only Paris, but France. The very nature of hearsay is that it's hard to pin down, hard to examine just what was being spread and the exact response it produced. But what we do know is this. As the new National Convention sat for its first full day, rumours swirled of a plot, a conspiracy, a scheme. According to the rumour mill, radical Jacobins planned to introduce a new tyranny. Specifically, Montagnard deputies were supposedly conspiring with their associates in the Paris Commune and the militant cohorts of the capital to commandeer the new National Convention and install a triumvirate. This triumvirate, deliberately saddled with the negative connotations of the word from ancient Rome, was to be led by three radicals, all of whom had defended the bloody September massacres. These three men are no strangers to us. The revolutionary journalist Marat, the Minister of Justice Danton, and the supposedly incorruptible politician Robespierre. All three men had been elected by Paris to the National Convention, and now it was rumoured that all three intended to use their popularity in the clubs and sections to install themselves as the new leaders of France. Worse still, it was rumoured that they intended to implement the most radical proposals favoured by the revolutionary sans-culottes. Private property and other natural rights were allegedly under attack, at least according to the word on the street. For many citizens in Paris, and many deputies in the new convention, these rumours of triumvirate, of dictatorship, of attacks on natural rights, were alarming, to say the least. It's for this reason that the first full day of the convention, or at least its first actions, were dominated by these rumours. You might be inclined to think that the first actions of this new constitutional convention would be to declare a republic, or, at a minimum, to abolish the monarchy. But no, they were not. Instead, the rumours, which were increasingly threatening the public peace in the capital, dictated the agenda, showing right from the outset how the shadows of the September massacres would weigh on the new legislature's agenda. Danton, one of the supposed members of this looming triumvirate, and someone blamed by others for the massacres, knew full well the dangers these rumours contained, and was keen to ensure that events did not get ahead of him. As a result, he sought to put the trouble in hearsay to rest, and he did so 
immediately. Having been installed as the Minister of Justice in the wake of the monarchy's demise, the popular politician and capable orator would resign as minister in order to sit in the convention. Nicknamed by some as the Mirabeau of the mob, Danton used his commanding presence to orchestrate the convention's first decrees. Seeking to eliminate the rumours which implicated him in treasonous conspiracy, Danton proposed to the convention that in order to destroy the vain phantoms of a dictatorship, the extravagant ideas of a triumvirate, and all these absurdities invented to frighten the people, it must be declared that the constitution will have to be accepted by the primary assemblies. Danton's move was clever politics. By insisting that the primary assemblies would have to ratify the constitution, that is to say that any constitution would have to be voted on by the people, Danton hoped to disperse the idea that he, or anyone else, could hijack the new national convention and corrupt its final output. The convention agreed with Danton's suggestion and promptly decreed that there could be no constitution but that accepted by the people. With one rumour addressed, Danton then turned his gaze to those relating to private property. As discussed in the last episode, many Montagnard deputies were supporters of property rights and many were also adherents to quite orthodox views on economic policy. Thus, when Danton proposed that the convention declare that all territorial, individual and industrial properties be perpetually maintained and safeguarded by the entire French people, the body swiftly concurred. The convention decreed that both persons and properties were under the protection of the nation. Thus, the first decrees of the National Convention did not concern the abolishment of the monarchy, nor the establishment of a republic. Instead, they concerned the primacy of the people, their position as sovereign, and the body's commitment to not only protect the people, but their property as well. As I said earlier, Danton's speech was smart politics. Historian Eric Hazen notes that these proposals were well designed to disarm his critics. Hazen observes that here was one of the supposed triumvirs denouncing the idea of a triumvirate, one of the supposed disruptors of property rights defending property. It was clever positioning by Danton, but one that would hardly put the rumours to rest. If we turn our attention back to the workings of the convention, it may surprise you that even after these decrees, the new body still did not take up the matter of what to do with the monarchy. Instead, focus shifted on ensuring that previous laws, and perhaps more importantly, previous taxes, remained in effect, and that unless explicitly revoked, all prior laws remained valid. It was only after the convention had issued more decrees relating to the continuation of existing laws and taxes that the issue of monarchy finally came to the fore. Historian Francois Alphonse Ollard indicates that the body was about to rise when the Parisian deputy, Colotte de Aubois, already an influential Jacobin and bound to become an important member of the Committee of Public Safety, 
took to his feet. Collot de Abois made it clear that the convention could not rise for the day. Their work was not done. The matter of the monarchy had to be addressed. Referring to the convention's decrees to the continuation of existing laws and taxes, Collot de Abois proclaimed, You have just made a wise decision, but there is a great, salutary and indispensable one that you cannot postpone until tomorrow, that you cannot postpone to this evening, that you cannot delay a single moment without being disloyal to the wish of the nation. That is, the abolition of the monarchy. Initially, Collot de Abois' suggestion was greeted with applause. But then came the apprehension, the concern, the debate. Supporting Collot de Abois were many other deputies, some from the Montagnard faction, but also members of the Girondins, as well as the unaffiliated grouping of deputies that was to become known as the Plain. As we heard last episode, the Abbe Gregoire strongly denounced the institution of monarchy, declaring that royal courts were the breeding ground of crime, and that kings fulfilled the moral role which monsters served in the physical world. But against these cries for abolition were those concerned that the convention risked going too far. One deputy claimed that, having just decreed the need for the people to vote on the eventual constitution, the convention should not abolish the monarchy, but instead offer an alternative to the people in which they would vote for the monarchy's abolition. Others proposed that the convention declare that the nation wished to abolish the monarchy rather than do so immediately, while some voiced concerns that such an action should not be rushed or spontaneous, but rather deliberate, methodical, and only embarked upon after a lengthy process of discussion. Interestingly, these concerns were not coming from royalists in the closet, but often by republicans who perhaps had valid concerns, or just other priorities. One deputy who suggested the monarchy's abolition be proposed to the people themselves made it very clear that he was eager to launch investigations into the crimes of King Louis XVI. One Girondin deputy argued that it would be beneficial for discussions to clearly demonstrate the need to abolish the monarchy and document the merits of a republic prior to issuing decrees on those important matters. But despite these concerns, despite the misgivings of some, those in favour of abolition continued to push. Abbé Grégoire had a great line where he implored the deputies to destroy the word king, as the word was a talisman with a magic power, able to stupefy men. Another deputy shared these sentiments and demanded immediate action. All consideration is useless. The story of the crimes of Louis XVI will do for a review. I demand that royalty shall be wholly and simply abolished in France. The whole people has consecrated this principle, and you will merely repeat the wish already expressed by the whole nation.
This proposal was greeted with loud applause, and with vocal support rising for each call for abolition, eventually the convention decided to do just that. In a simple statement, the body declared, The National Convention decrees unanimously that royalty is abolished in France. According to the revolutionary press, this decree was met with jubilation. The Journal de Paris recorded, It is impossible to picture to our readers the impression which this decree made upon all those who saw it passed. Cries of applause, bravos, hats thrown into the air, oaths to make an end of all tyrants altogether, cries of long live freedom and legality. This is a mere hint of what we witnessed. Let us add that all hearts were trembling with emotion, and one may form some slight idea of the spectacle. A similar scene was described in the Gazette de France. When this decree was pronounced, cries of joy filled the hall, and all arms remained raised towards heaven, as if to thank it for having delivered France from the greatest scourge that has afflicted the earth. So, on the 21st of September, 1792, the French monarchy was abolished. The scene, at least amongst the revolutionaries, was one of elation and joy. Interestingly, however, the job was only half done. The convention had decreed that the monarchy was abolished. It had not decreed the existence of the French Republic. Although some other government authorities, such as some of the city sections and even department administrations, had declared in favour of a republic, the convention had not. It would take another day for the body to catch up. On the 22nd of September, the Parisian deputy, Bayou Varenne, suggested that the convention make it Facebook official. He proposed that France should date all public acts from year one of the Republic, starting from the day before. The convention agreed, and with this calendar-centric proposal, the convention finalised France's transformation to a Republic. Not quite the trumpets and fanfare that one may expect. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. 
Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. So, that's it. That's how France came to declare the first French Republic. The National Convention abolished the monarchy on its first full day of sitting, and the next day formalised France's transformation into a republican state. Now, as I said, the depiction of these events, especially amongst the revolutionary press, was quite positive. Scenes of joyful jubilation accompanied acts of friendship and camaraderie as the deputies celebrated what they knew to be a historic and groundbreaking act. But I'm sure it will come as no surprise for me to inform you that all this cheerful unity did not last. In fact, it took just days for the chamber to forget its kumbaya moment and descend into all-out factional warfare. Now, there were a few flashpoints in the opening days, but one of the most noteworthy related to a series of measures which one could loosely, and I do mean loosely, be grouped together under the rough theme of protecting the independence and integrity of the National Convention. Within the first few days of the Convention's existence, the body turned its attention to the Paris Commune and the situation in the capital. If you recall, the Paris Commune was once the Insurrectionary Commune. The current municipality had installed itself on the 10th of August, having overthrown the previous municipal government before immediately proceeding to help topple the throne. In the weeks that followed, tensions between this body and the Legislative Assembly had been significant, with the former often staffed by revolutionaries sympathetic to the Montagnards, and the latter generally comprised of deputies supportive of the Girondins. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the Commune and its allies in the clubs and sections had consistently pressured, intimidated, and even threatened the national legislature on a wide range of issues, including, but not limited to, the creation of the Revolutionary Tribunal. In response to this encroachment on its authority, the Legislative Assembly had tried and failed to dissolve the body and call fresh municipal elections. Well, the Convention, like its predecessor, had no interest in letting the Parisian municipality dictate the tune to which the nation was to dance. With the benefit of the legitimacy of fresh national elections, the National Convention sought to use its authority to do something about the upstart radicals in Town Hall. 
Firstly, the convention appointed commissioners to investigate the situation in the capital. Realistically, this meant to investigate the commune and its committees, which is exactly what occurred throughout October. Far more controversial, however, was the fact that Girondin deputies then went on to demand the creation of what they called a constitutional guard. This armed force would be recruited from every department in France and would theoretically protect the National Convention and its deputies. But the obvious question was, to protect the Convention, from what? What could this Constitutional Guard do that the Parisian National Guard could not? The answer, of course, is that many deputies sought protection from Paris itself. Parisians had stormed the Bastille, they had marched on Versailles, Recently, they had overthrown not only the municipal government, but the monarchy itself. Just two weeks before the convention sat in Paris, citizens of the capital were slaughtering prisoners in the streets. Furthermore, according to some Girondin deputies, radical members of the commune had helped to instigate and encourage those murders, in addition to spending the last six weeks intimidating, threatening and undermining the Legislative Assembly. The Constitutional Guard was essentially being proposed to ensure that the new National Convention was not the latest in a long series of institutions that radical Parisians swept away in a popular demonstration. From the perspective of many deputies, this was an entirely reasonable proposal. But to a minority of deputies, this suggestion was not only unreasonable, but outrageous. The Parisian deputies in particular were incensed at the implication that the convention needed protection from the capital and quickly went on the counter-attack. Colotte de Abois denounced the distrust and antagonism shown towards Paris, the heart of the revolution, while another deputy inquired what need there was for such a formidable force when the citizens of Paris had previously opposed tyranny with invincible courage. Not to be left unheard, Robespierre entered the fray, with many perceiving the investigations into the Commune as actually a proxy attack on Robespierre himself, given his influence in the municipality and the fact that it was staffed by both his allies and like-minded associates. Rejecting the need for the proposed constitutional guard, Robespierre condemned the proposal, stating that it implied that the Frenchmen of Paris were a different breed from those who lived in the departments. The convention failed to resolve the issue of the Constitutional Guard that day. But blood had been drawn, and it would continue to flow. On the 25th of September, the Girondin offensive continued. In what can reasonably be described as a premeditated attack, deputy after deputy denounced Robespierre, Danton and Marat for their aspirations for tyranny. If Danton had hoped that his earlier proposition that the primary assembly's vote on the final constitution had put the matter to rest, well, his hopes were dashed. According to historian Michael Sydenham, the Girondins pursued three lines of attack as they sought to destroy the reputation of the Montagnard deputies by linking them to the horrors of the September massacres.
When the debate was reopened on 25 September, the vindictive element in the policy became even more obvious. Now, the unsullied reputation of the Montagnards as the men of 10 August, the begetters of the new Republican Revolution, was to be destroyed by the allegation that they had encouraged the massacres of September. And so all the provincial deputies' latent distrust of the capital would be focused upon them. After La Source had repeated the tale of the attempted murder of the leaders of the legislative, Brousseau and Vernieu openly accused the Montagnards, including Robespierre, of complicity. Another allegation, initiated by La Source and supported by Boyou, Barbaroux and Vernieu, was that certain intriguers were endeavouring to use the emergency powers still exercised by the Commune to gain control of the whole of France. Yet a third line of attack, also opened up by La Source, was the assertion that the disorders in Paris were part of a conspiracy to establish a dictatorship, and to this charge, easily acceptable to an audience steeped in classical history, Barbaroux and Rebecca added a direct denunciation of Robespierre. The intention to tarnish all the Montagnards with the evil reputation of Marat, an acknowledged expedient of bloodshed and dictatorship, is evident. So, the new National Convention had existed for five days, not even five full days, before bitter and venomous factional conflict consumed the chamber. Seeking to capitalise on the misgivings of many unaligned provincial deputies regarding the extremism and violence of the capital, the Girondins were hoping to stain their opponents with the blood of the massacres which had devoured Paris less than three weeks before. But this would not go to plan, with many historians noting that this assault and those which followed resulted in Montagnard victories both in the short and medium term. However, before we get into the responses of the supposed triumphers and how they secured victories in the face of such vicious assaults, I would like to take a brief moment to emphasise just that. Supposed triumphers. In reality, these accusations, these rumours, didn't have much or debatably any real substance. At best, it is true that Marat, ever the radical journalist, had previously announced himself in favour of establishing a dictatorship, just like the ancient Romans had done in times of mortal danger. It's noteworthy that prior to the 20th century, a century full of dictators, the word didn't necessarily have quite the same negative connotations as it does today. Critically, Marat had previously proposed as dictator an individual he championed as incorruptible. I am, of course, referring to Maximilien Robespierre. So, for those wishing to emphasise a link between Marat and Robespierre, there was something to go on. You didn't have to look past Marat's own writings to see him championing a Robespierreist tyranny. But beyond that, and one's evidence starts to get pretty sparse. Yes, all three men had ties to the Jacobin Club, and all three were willing to defend the September massacres. Besides this, however, and the connections between the members of this triumvirate were actually, well, not really there. Historian Marisa Linton claims 
that Robespierre went to great lengths to demonstrate that there was no personal relationship between him and Marat. While his opponents accused Robespierre of orchestrating the Parisian elections in such a way to ensure Marat's election to the convention, Robespierre vehemently denied this. Likewise, Marat and Danton, although both linked to the radical Cordelet Club, were hardly best friends forever, and Danton also emphasised the distance between himself and the controversial journalist. Danton had supported Marat in his previous run-ins with the authorities, but the two were far from allies, let alone fellow conspirators. If we turn our attention to the relationship between Danton and Robespierre, it would be fair to say that the two were always odd bedfellows, and at this point in time, the word ally is too strong a word. I say odd bedfellows because in September 1792, the two men struck considerably different images. While Robespierre was denouncing Brousseau and the Girondins for treachery, Danton was seeking compromise and reconciliation. It was his position as an acceptable intermediary between both camps that had helped him to be installed to the position of Justice Minister after the 10th of August. Danton failed to broker any sort of reconciliation between Robespierre and Brousseau, but it took some time before Danton fully embraced hostility with the Girondins. This difference, however, was just the start. If Robespierre was restrained, Danton was extravagant. If Robespierre was perceived as cold, Danton exuded warmth. Most notably, if Robespierre was the incorruptible, Danton was not. Instead, Danton's image was saddled with questions as to how he managed to pay off considerable debts. His Girondin enemies would even yell, the accounts, the accounts, when he spoke in the convention to reference the missing funds from his time as Minister of Justice. Which, I must say, is an absolutely brilliant way to have a laugh and discredit one's political opponents simultaneously. I cannot confirm if the Girondins pretended to search the debating chamber for the missing accounts, but if they didn't feign looking under desks or searching behind curtains while yelling the accounts, it was a missed opportunity. My digression aside, the dubious means of repaying considerable debt means that this Mirabeau of the mob may have had more in common with the dead aristocrat than just his skill for public speaking. With cries of the accounts echoing in the convention, Danton's sullied reputation was considerably different to that of the incorruptible Robespierre's. So the point I want to make here is that there was no triumvirate. There was enough connections for a rumour to latch onto. There was enough to invoke fear and trepidation. But that was it. While in the future these three men would find themselves working together to various degrees, Right now, in September 1792, this triumvirate was little more than a Girondin scare tactic. These three men were hardly allies, nor did they have much in common besides their political beliefs, and even then, they also had considerable differences in those. As we'll see next episode, all three men could hold very different views, including what to do with the king and his planned trial. However, Despite saying all of this, 
While accusations of a triumvirate may have been little more than a Girondin scare tactic, it was one that they themselves no doubt believed. Like much hearsay in the French Revolution, these accusations of aspirations for tyranny made for an important rumour, an influential rumour, a rumour that dictated the course of events, and one that we should not simply disregard if we wish to understand the revolution. Hi, I'm Michael Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we enjoy today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end, starting with the events leading up to the war, including a look at the French and Indian War and pre-war disputes. We then go through the war itself and eventually reach the founding of a new nation based on principles of democratic government. Along the way, there are lots of great stories of both selfishness and sacrifice, some unbelievable human achievements, and some all-too-familiar examples of greed, self-dealing, and betrayal. Please subscribe for free to the American Revolution podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Hello, everybody. Earlier this year, I left my job to bring you more grey history more often. History can be both entertaining and educational, without being oversimplified and dumbed down. And that is what grey history seeks to do. But episodes take me in excess of 40 to 50 hours to create. And right now, grey history is just not sustainable. I need your help, not someone else's but yours, to ensure that I can keep making the show that you love to listen to. By supporting the show on Patreon, you gain access to an ad-free feed, hours of unmissable bonus content, and the knowledge that you're doing your bit to help grey history stay on the air. There's no major network behind this show. There's not some long list of advertisers keen to spend big on a rather obscure history niche. There's just me. Me and those who are helping to keep the show going by supporting the podcast on Patreon. So please, for as little as $2 per regular episode, for as little as half a cup of coffee, help be the change you want to see, help ensure that history isn't told in a manner that's black and white, and help ensure that there's more grey history waiting for you tomorrow. There's no guarantee it will be.
Against these allegations of dictatorship, both Danton and Marat undertook two very different approaches, reflecting the very different personalities of each man. Danton, ever the reconciler, attempted to find a middle ground. Firstly, he demanded what he described as vigorous laws to protect liberty, and sought the death penalty for anyone who spoke in favour of triumvirates or dictatorships. Here, Danton was once again using his powers as an orator to disarm the accusations against him, and his suggestion was greeted with great applause in the convention. Critically, however, Danton then went further and demanded the death penalty for anyone who sought to destroy the unity of France. The convention would agree with Danton later that session, famously proclaiming the Republic to be one and indivisible. I found it difficult to ascertain if Danton truly appreciated what he had just achieved, but whether knowing it or not, the Montagnards had secured a tremendous victory against the Girondins. By criminalising attempts to destroy the unity of France, this law could be used as a weapon against Brousseau and his allies. Frequently presented as the defenders of the departments, as the champions of the regions of France, Girondin attempts to further empower those departments and weaken the central authority of Paris could be portrayed by their enemies as undermining or even attacking the unity of the nation. The supporters of regional autonomy could be accused of seeking to create republics within the republic. At its extreme, they could be accused of advocating France's transformation from one political entity into multiple. Hence, the convention's insistence that the republic was one and indivisible is critically important. The advocacy for greater regional autonomy will become to be termed as federalism in the French Revolution, and we will talk about federalism at some length in future episodes. But what's important to note now is that far from winning their pre-planned assault on the Montagnards, the Girondins finished the day with a law that could be used against them and their own ideological beliefs. Thus, Danton had not only skillfully deflected accusations of conspiracy by criminalising the advocacy for dictatorship, but he had also weakened the Girondins substantially. I'm just not sure he knew the magnitude of his victory. Marat, however, took an entirely different course of action. Instead of seeking legislative compromise or middle ground, he loudly, and admittedly courageously, stood firm in the face of incredible opposition. Disliked even by many Montagnard Jacobins, the controversial journalist rose to defend himself, despite being heckled from all sides of the convention. Marat acknowledged that he had previously championed the cause of dictatorship, but insisted that neither Robespierre nor Danton had approved of the idea, or for that matter, had any connections to his prior advocacy. Marat staunchly defended his actions and justified his writings by referring to the crimes of the previous regimes. The Girondin deputy Vernu had had enough and denounced Marat as dribbling with slander, bile and blood. But despite the convention's initial hostility towards Marat, 
the body permitted him to continue to make his case. The controversial deputy may not have done much to address the rapid polarisation of the convention, but if nothing else, Marat's strong and impassioned defence demonstrated that if the Girondins wanted a brawl, he was prepared to roll up his sleeves. So, the National Convention had lasted roughly half a week before descending into toxic denunciations and feuding. The issue of the Constitutional Guard remained hotly contested, and tensions continued to flare in the weeks that followed. Both sides deeply distrusted the other. In an environment characterised by fear and conspiracy, both accused the other of treachery, corruption, vanity and self-serving ambition. Denunciations and recriminations dominated the month of October, the victories of the Republican armies allowing the revolutionaries to once more turn their attention on their domestic enemies as the Prussians and the Austrians retreated with haste. In a noteworthy speech to the Jacobin Club on the 28th of October, Robespierre forcefully accused his Girondin enemies of being more criminal in their methods than any faction which preceded them. Which is really saying something, because if there was one thing that both the Girondins and the Montagnards could agree on, it was the criminality of Lafayette and other Fillons. Robespierre denounced the Girondins for their ambition, for their intrigue, for serving the aristocratic interests of those opposed to the revolution. To him, the Girondins were representing the rich, the office holders, the ambitious, the power-hungry, and this hypocritical faction, to use his own words, portrayed themselves as the moderates while putting the revolution in danger. Brousseau and his allies falsely presented themselves as honest men, as the gentlemen of the Republic, while they smeared Robespierre and the true defenders of the revolution with accusations of seeking anarchy and tyranny. On the topic of accusations, Robespierre proclaimed that calumny or slander was responsible for the revolution's troubles. It had triggered both bloodshed and regrettable events, but even more importantly, it had undermined the revolutionary project by discrediting the reputations of virtuous citizens. By which he of course meant himself. In a theme that Robespierre would continue to develop, his denunciation of calumny was consistent. And just to be clear, calumny is the act of making false and defamatory statements in order to damage someone's reputation. Which, yes, was a very real problem, but it was a problem that everyone was helping to perpetuate, including Robespierre himself. In his crusade against false slander, in late October, Robespierre declared that the work of the revolution was not over, and that dangerous factions continued to menace the revolution. Take away the word republic, and I see nothing has changed. I see everywhere the same vices, the same cabals, the same methods, and above all, the same calumny. As indicated by the fact that this fiery attack occurred in the Jacobin Club, the battle for supremacy of the convention spilt outside the chamber and into the clubs, the streets, the press, 
Of particular note is the developments in the Parisian Jacobin Club, the heart of the revolution. The Montagnard wing of the Jacobins had long been on the rise in the capital, and in mid-October, Brousseau was officially excommunicado from the club. For those that aren't eagerly awaiting John Wick 4, that's a fancy way of saying that he was shown the door. In protest to the expulsion of Brousseau, many other Girondin deputies either quit the club or just stopped attending. Furthermore, as the factional conflict escalated, more Girondins were kicked out of the club by the end of the month, including the Interior Minister Roland. Now, as upsetting as I'm sure all of this was for those involved, I am not particularly upset because we finally reached a point in time where I can change some terminology. In recent episodes, I've had to specify the Girondin wing of the Jacobin Club, or the Montagnard wing of the Jacobin Club, or both wings of the Jacobin Club, and henceforth, I don't need to bother to differentiate. Going forward, the leading Girondins are all outside of the tent. And so when I say the Jacobins, you can now think of the Montagnard revolutionaries and their like-minded associates. Likewise, if we hear contemporaries or historians refer to the Jacobins, from this point onwards, they're most likely talking about those who associate with the mountain, particularly if discussing the Parisian Jacobin Club. So, just to be clear, in the past, both the Girondins and Montagnards were part of the Jacobins. But going forward, if you hear Jacobin, you can think Montagnard, especially when it is in reference to the capital. Interestingly, like the Fionns departing the Jacobin Club in mid-1791, here in October 1792, the departure of Brousseau and his allies produced another schism which rocked the society to its core. The effects were felt all over the country, as clubs and affiliates across France had no idea which side to choose. In an age before television, before radio, before campaign buses, much of this battle occurred in the press, as well as in written communications between friends and associates. For those in the departments, it wasn't clear which side was telling the truth. Was Brousseau right and the Mother Society in Paris overrun with radical, tyrannical, bloodthirsty false patriots? Or was Robespierre correct when he claimed that Brousseau and his allies were in cahoots with the court and the Prussians, and that these deceptive scoundrels truly represented the aristocracy as they attempted to satisfy their self-serving ambitions? In the weeks that followed, the divisions of the capital were manifested across the country. The provincial affiliate of Cognac denounced Robespierre as miserable, while that in Dieppe accused him of false virtue. Historian Jonathan Israel notes that Brousseau's calls for the provincial clubs to disaffiliate with the capital had some effect, with the whole concept of affiliation now portrayed as a tool for Paris to subordinate the departments. Of course, other provincial societies remained tied to the Jacobins of the capital, and instead denounced the Girondins as deceitful intriguers. Interestingly, the conflict in the departments not only originated from the capital, but then returned to Paris as well. When some groups of Federé volunteers arrived from the corners of the realm, 
Some demanded the heads of Robespierre, Marat, and others who sought tyranny and despotism. To put it simply, the factionalism of the convention was not just dividing the revolutionary government in Paris, but it was dividing the revolution itself, and it was doing so in every corner of France. Thus, in the first month of the convention's existence, factional politics reigned supreme. However, while both sides had accused the other of all manners of treachery and deception, neither had been able to land a knockout blow. But, as Instagram will tell you, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Almost five weeks after the inauguration of the convention, Girondin deputies once again launched a vicious attack on their Montagnat opponents. This time, on the 29th of October, the target was not the supposed triumvirate, but the Paris Commune, and by association, Maximilien Robespierre. The first shots were fired by the Girondin interior minister, Roland. Roland presented to the convention a report on the situation in the capital, and used the report to condemn the city's municipal government. Not holding back, Roland described the commune as an institution carried away by its own zeal, mistaken in its aims, and one which had seized powers not only illegally, but which had failed to use those powers in a just manner. Here again, the Girondins were seeking to use the commune's previous interference in national affairs and the associations with the September massacres to discredit leading Montagnat officials. Robespierre was quick to defend the commune and attempted to prevent the convention from printing and distributing copies of Roland's report. But this action merely brought the attack upon him directly. Having lamented that no one accused him openly, the Girondin deputy Louvet leapt to his feet. Denouncing Robespierre for all manners of crimes, the attack was remorseless. Here's just a taste of Louvet's assault. I accuse you of having continually sought the plaudits of the crowd and of having set yourself up as an object of idolatry. I accuse you of having tyrannised the electoral assembly of the Department of Paris by all the methods of intrigue and terror at your disposal. And finally, I accuse you of having quite obviously set your sights on a position of supreme power. To put it mildly, Louvet's denunciation of Robespierre was brutal. Historian Eric Hazen describes it as one of the most vicious and dangerous attacks that Robespierre had yet been forced to hear, and characterise it as a long and rhetorically effective speech, punctuated by a rapid volley of accusations. Historian Marisa Linton describes a thorough and wide-ranging attack, writing, Louvet went back over every move that Robespierre had made as a political leader, using a reading of Robespierre's motives that had been developed in the Girondin press. According to this narrative, Robespierre's involvement in revolutionary politics, all his actions and words, made under the cloak of his supposed devotion to the good of the people, had in reality served as a screen for his actual purpose, to further his own advancement to power. (laughs) 
Louvet's denunciation culminated in the accusation that Robespierre was guilty of the ultimate crime in personal ambition, of secretly plotting to make himself a dictator. To say that Robespierre was stunned by this sudden and effective rhetorical assault would be an understatement. Historian Peter McPhee, an expert in Robespierre, describes the revolutionary leader as being thoroughly startled. In his attack, Louvet had even gone as far as to call for a law which would facilitate not only Robespierre's ejection from the convention, but his banishment from the Republic. Danton came to Robespierre's defence, although he himself would likely have faced a similar fate should any such law had succeeded. Fortunately for Robespierre, the target of this renewed Girondin assault was granted time to prepare a response, which he delivered to great interest on the 5th of November. And to be clear, when I say great interest, I'm not exaggerating. Members of the public could watch the debates of the convention from dedicated public galleries, and for Robespierre's speech, people literally fought over the tickets. The most eager even camped outside overnight. For those who had braved the elements to see Robespierre defend himself, they were not disappointed. If Robespierre had been thoroughly surprised by the attacks against him the week prior, now he was thoroughly determined to deliver an awe-inspiring rebuttal. Defending the actions of Parisians, of Frenchmen in recent months, Robespierre famously asked his peers if they wanted a revolution without revolution. He claimed that the overthrow of the monarchy had been undertaken by the Friends of Freedom, and that those who had done so, including the Parisian Commune, including the Parisian Saint-Culottes, had done so on behalf of all the departments. Critically, he argued that the convention could not pick and choose which revolutionary acts it endorsed and which it rejected. He claimed that the revolutionaries had to approve or disapprove of them altogether. Surely, a few misdemeanours on the parts of some, either real or imagined, was inevitable during times of such great upheaval. Furthermore, in relation to the September massacres, he adamantly defended his own conduct, categorically rejecting accusations that he had any connection to the killings whatsoever, and blamed their instigation on the terror caused by the Prussian advance. Going further, he argued that the victims of the old regime should not be forgotten. For those victims, those innocent citizens, were far greater in number than those who had suffered in the jails and prisons. To criticise the illegality of revolutionary violence was not just to criticise the massacres, but to criticise the storming of the Bastille, the overthrow of the monarchy, hell, the entire revolutionary project. By the time the dust was settled, Robespierre's impressive speech was a triumph. Having been the target of attacks for weeks, the deputy had cleared his name. Some Girondin deputies lined up to reply, to renew the assault on the man they accused of aspiring for tyranny. But critically, the convention was not interested, and not even the former Parisian mayor Petion 
still popular and once friendly with Robespierre, was permitted to speak. To put it simply, the convention was tiring of all this factional conflict. And here is where we reach one of the most important consequences of all this fighting in the first few weeks of the convention. Initially, the Girondin deputies started off in a commanding position. Many unaffiliated and unaligned deputies were sympathetic to the Girondin denunciations of disorder in the capital. They were fearful of a repeat of the September massacres, and they resented the control Paris was exerting through both the clubs and the commune on the deputies of the entire nation. We can see strong sympathies for the Girondins by the fact that many of them were immediately elected to prominent positions within the body when it first met. The former mayor, Jerome Petion, was elected to be the convention's first president, while several Girondin deputies were elected as secretaries, including Brousseau, Vernieux, La Source, and Condorcet. But the weeks of bitter squabbling had done the Girondins no favours. In fact, historian Timothy Tackett claims that some deputies grew tired of the constant attacks against the Montagnards. Viewing these assaults as comprised of nothing more than unproven accusations, these deputies lamented that so much time, so much attention, was being redirected from the many urgent issues which the convention needed to resolve. As a result, Tackett claims that several deputies who had once been sympathetic to the Girondins shifted their allegiance, reversing their earlier hostility towards the mountain and actually coming round to support it. Historian Simon Sharma agrees and notes that the vehemence with which the Girondins attacked their rivals resulted in them appearing to be almost obsessed with personal recriminations rather than the interests of the nation. These perspectives, one which characterised the Girondin attacks as ultimately self-defeating, can be found across the ideological spectrum. Historian Albert Sabul, for example, considered a Marxist historian, comes from a very different historical camp compared to both Sharma and Tackett. But Sabul reaches a similar conclusion and notes that Robespierre's successful defence in early November was yet another setback for the Girondins. Sabul writes, For the Gironde, this was a further setback. Robespierre left the debating chamber with his reputation greatly enhanced, appearing indeed as the real leader of the Montagnards. The essential outcome of these attacks was to create a permanent schism between the Mountain and the Gironde. At the same time, they had the effect of forming a third party between the Gironde and the Mountain, what Camille de Malard was to call the Flematics, real political spectators who had taken up positions midway between Brousseau and Robespierre to see which way the tide turns. The independent deputies, who had arrived from their departments full of prejudices against the Commune and the Mountain, were nevertheless disturbed by the constant flow of Girondin denunciations and the recrimination which they so clearly harboured over supposed wrongs committed in the past. Anarchist Klutz who had for a long time been among the supporters of the Girondins, broke with them rather dramatically by publishing a pamphlet entitled 
neither Marat nor Roland, but in fact devoted exclusively to an attack on his former friends. By the beginning of November 1792, the third party within the convention had already taken shape. The Gironde now found itself unable to control the chamber without outside assistance, and on 16 November, the Girondins lost the presidency for the first time. On that day, it was one of the independents, the constitutional bishop Gregoire, who was elected president of the assembly. Although heralding from the Marxist school of historical analysis, the sentiments expressed by Sabul are shared by many. Across the board, historians see these constant flow of denunciations as ultimately harming the Girondins' cause. Instead of neutralising the Montagnard leadership and their allies, the Girondins had emboldened them and roused a forceful counterattack against their own positions. More importantly, instead of garnering support amongst the plain, many unaffiliated deputies became exhausted and exacerbated by the endless factional strife. The mood can perhaps be best summarised by the words of one deputy, who lamented the political struggle that consumed the convention. Now that the royalty no longer exists, and that the success of our armies signals the conquest of the world in the name of liberty, by what terrible fate has the sanctuary of the laws been transformed into an arena of gladiators? The transformation of the convention into an arena of gladiators, driven by Girondin attacks, is critically important. By November 1792, when the issue of the king's trial came to the fore, the Girondins' power in the convention was on the decline. Was it extinguished? Absolutely not. Was it at its low point? Hardly. But having focused almost unceasingly on attacking their enemies, both in the convention and in the capital more broadly, the Girondins had failed to cultivate strong ties with the majority of the convention. Instead, the great mass of unaffiliated deputies, often referred to as the Plain, remained unconvinced of the dangers of Robespierre, Danton, and their like minded associates. However, some had become convinced that the Girondins were more interested in personal feuds than in governing a nation in crisis. That the deputies commanding so much airtime in the convention were using it not to address the war, nor inflation, nor shortages of food and basic commodities, but to address unsubstantiated rumours and accusations. In addition to alienating many in the plain, by launching investigations into the Commune and demanding the creation of a constitutional guard, the Girondins had done nothing to mend their fractured relationship with Paris's radical cohorts. The Sanculottes of the capital were seeing the deputies of Paris, their deputies, attacked, assailed, and accused. For a growing number of Parisian radicals, the question was starting to be asked. What? was to be done about this Girondin menace. Perhaps these false patriots, like the king before them, should be removed by force. Historian Christopher Hibbert summarises the increasingly tenuous situation 
the Girondins found themselves in by November 1792, a situation in which the Girondins were isolated in the capital. The Girondins might well have maintained their supremacy had they taken more care to cultivate the plain, had they not emphasised the political gulf that now separated Paris from the provinces, and had they not endeavoured to discredit the capital and its commune in the eyes of the rest of the country. But, as it was, the Girondins succeeded only in alienating the Parisians, when they might have profited by the revulsion that so many of them felt against the September massacres, for which Vernieu unreservedly blamed the Jacobins, and in antagonising several members of the plain, as well as the followers of Danton, whom Jean Roland, out of jealousy, and Manon Roland, from both distrust and personal distaste, vilified with increasing vehemence. So, by the time of the King's trial, in November 1792, the revolution was consumed with factional struggle. The dangers of foreign invasion had relented, at least momentarily, but all sides proclaimed that the menace of domestic enemies remained ever-present. According to the Girondins, Robespierre and his allies had instigated the September massacres, had attempted to have Brousseau and other political rivals killed, had intimidated the Electoral Assembly of Paris, and had conspired to do so against the Convention. Robespierre, they said, worked towards supreme power, either individually or with the help of Marat and Danton. The words of the Girondin deputy Louvet summed it up neatly when he claimed that there was two parties in France, one composed of philosophers, the second of thieves, robbers and murderers. The Montagnards were just as capable in returning vitriolic assaults. According to them, the Girondins represented the aristocracy, the rich, the self-serving and ambitious elite who conspired to gorge themselves at the expense of the people. They were willing to do business with the monarchy, the Prussians, hell, anyone required on their egotistical quest for money and power. In a reply to Louvet's statement of there being only two parties in France, Robespierre agreed, claiming that there was the party of the good citizens and the party of evil citizens those who represent the French people and those who think only of their ambition and personal gain. It was in this bitter, spiteful and vindictive environment that the convention turned its attention to a matter of great importance. What to do with the king? It was in this venomous and acrimonious atmosphere that the fate of Louis XVI would be decided. Needless to say, the conflicts which defined the previous months would shape those to come. Thank you for listening to episode 45, First Republic, then Dictatorship. The episode extra for this episode will be a little different than normal, and I've had numerous Patreons write in to tell me just how much they enjoyed it. Essentially, I'm going to freestyle my thoughts on the Girondin attacks we discussed today. Over the course of about 18 minutes, I'll be sharing my thoughts on everything from the historical analysis to whether or not I think these attacks were understandable 
to what could perhaps have been done differently. As I said, it won't be scripted, it will be just me talking off the cuff. So something a little different, and you'll get the chance to see what I make of all of this. That episode extra, along with an ad-free feed and hours of exclusive bonus content, is available only to Patreon supporters of the show. So please, go sign up right now. Just Google Grey History Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. In the next episode, we'll be talking about the trial of Louis XVI. Yes, we are finally here at Louis' trial, and I promise it will be a doozy. Another warm welcome to the newest patrons of the show, and a special thank you again to the amazingly generous heroes of the revolution, Brian, Eric, Christy, and Charles. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Please support the show in any way you can, and have a great day. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.